ever wonder why we describe the proof of a liquor? Or if there were real pirates of the Caribbean? Get ready to learn all that and more on a history of intemperance. Cheers, and welcome to A History of Intemperance, the show where we connect our favorite beverages with the people and events of yesteryear. I'm the best professional bartender who's never poured you a drink, and my name is Dusty O'Connell. And I am Joe Hood, a history buff who likes to drink. Every week, we choose a beverage, a cocktail, or a spirit, and we connect to its history. This week, we're talking about rum. Dusty, you're up first. What do you got? Well, Joe. Tonight, I've got an interview with a fellow Colorado mixologist and spirits guru. His name is Jesse Torres, and I summoned him to take us on a journey through the connection between sugar-based spirits and the Pirates of the Caribbean. Not the Johnny Depp films, but actual pirates, including one whose name you will likely already know. Okay, that's great, because I have the ocean in mind too. I've got a bit on the importance of rum and the seafaring history of the term proof, and why we use that word to measure how strong alcohol is. Well, how fortuitous. Serendipitous, even. I look forward to having that conversation with you on the other side of my interview with mixologist and spirits expert, Jesse Torres. Joining me now is a man with a resume so long that it's basically easier to describe him as a true raconteur and a bon vivant, Mr. Jesse Torres. Thank you for doing this, Jesse. How are you tonight? Great. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. Awesome. Uh, look, you're kind of a unicorn in the food and beverage world. Uh, you've done some time with the Air Force, and I want to thank you for your service. But uh, you also went to a very prestigious culinary school. You staged at Chef Eric Repair's flagship restaurant, Le Bernardin. And then you found your professional home in the beverage world. Could you talk a little bit about that journey? Yeah. So um, it started a long time ago, um, basically with my dad. Uh, my father was into rum and I grew up around rum because, you know, that's what he drank. And, you know, my first tipple of any kind of spirit was rum and kind of brought me into the foray and like got, you know, you know, piqued my interest. So this has been a long journey for you. Speaking of long journeys, I want to ask you about where the journey of Caribbean rum begins. I want to talk about Barbados because Barbados is a very wonderful example of how rum and sugar in the Caribbean shaped everything because Barbados in the 1600s produced more sugar and employed more shippers than all of the other British West Indian islands put together. Now, this is a small island that's probably as big as Long Island, you know, in comparison. And this wealth lasted for decades. As late as 1715, the value of exports from Barbados exceeded not only that of the other islands, but all of the other British North American colonies combined. For example, the city of Bridgetown in Barbados, they were bigger and more prosperous than Manhattan. Uh, they were more wealthy than the King of England himself, in fact. The biggest reason they were able to become so rich was because of the labor that they had was practically free. You know, 
cultivating sugar cane is incredibly difficult. It's dangerous and it's incredibly strenuous work. You know, they created their wealth on the backs of a massive slave population. And the history of rum should always acknowledge the great human tragedy that was waged on millions of humans for their monetary gain. Many people might not realize it, but Captain Henry Morgan was a real live pirate of that era. What's his deal, basically? How did he become the famous face on the bottle we all recognize? Captain Morgan was definitely a very intense and brutal person in real life. Fortunately, he took that out on non-native populations mostly. So, I guess I guess I guess there's that, you know, uh, Captain Morgan mainly since he was British, or actually he was Welsh, he was born in Wales in 1635 and came to Barbados uh, in 1655. He was only 20 years old thereabouts when he came to Barbados. He came there as an indentured servant um, and only worked a couple of years until Oliver Cromwell, which I'm sure you know, he sent a whole force over to the Caribbean in an attempt to destroy the Spanish. Um, so basically all of Captain Morgan's exploits war against the Spanish. After he was basically from being an indentured servant and being forced into conscription for the British crown, their first mission was to go to Hispaniola, which is now Haiti and the, the uh, Dominican Republic, and take it over. Uh, they failed miserably and instead set, set their sights on a smaller Spanish colony. So. They went to Jamaica, to what is now Kingston, the capital of Jamaica, and they raided it. This time they won. And after that, Captain Morgan, he wasn't Captain Morgan then, but during the Anglo-Dutch War of 1665 to 1667, he went along the American colony coast where the Dutch were and successfully raided quite a bit. And that's where he really got a name for himself. The people that he employed and he was he was fighting with promoted him to captain, which is where he got his name from, and he became very successful. But he wasn't a pirate, which is something that is very important to understand here. There's a difference between being a pirate and a and a privateer, and the the basic difference is that a privateer wasn't directly paid by the British government. Um, they were sanctioned. They were allowed to raid and basically do pirate shit, but um, they split the booty with the British government. So they weren't directly paid. So, you know, they they fed to the rules and they basically hit the ground running and they gave what they got to the the British. You know, if you're not a privateer, all that glitters is gold until you have to give a cut of the way to the British. But at least they weren't illegal like pirates were. So, so basically, after uh, the Dutch the Anglo Dutch War, Captain Morgan went on just basically being a privateer. You know, it, it didn't make sense not to live for fun. You know, as they say, and Captain Morgan made a whole lot out of that. He basically went up and down the American coast. He went and especially hit the Spanish hard. His biggest feats were in Panama, where he really routed the Spanish. Captain Morgan basically said, you know, there's so much to do. There's so much to see. But 
he really had his eyes set on the Spanish and in Panama. I think it was basically because he had a vendetta against them for losing in Hispaniola. But this is where it gets kind of graphic because these guys really did not care. You know, if, if they were going to get you and you were the enemy, you know, there was no quarter. They were going to rape and pillage and torture and basically burn everything down and take what they wanted. Um, th- this is where, like, I feel like Captain Morgan really got his name. Um, he, he, he got, you know, what he wanted. He plundered and he pillaged some of, like, the most, like, gruesome accounts of torture and death, I think, come from these pirate stories. And, and you have a lot of that to owe from this Dutch guy, actually. His name is Alexander Exquamilin. He spent eight years living with these guys. He published a book in 18, in 1678 called The Ameriskanish Zee Rovers. And it was translated to English and became like a bestseller. But he basically talked about all the pursuits. You know, obviously, like, he was elaborating some. But this is where we get to know a lot of Captain Morgan and what he did. Anybody who's ever been anything in this world um, has always benefited from having some kind of bard or scribe. Basically, these days, we know him as like, who's someone who's a marketing or someone who's a blogger or something or a writer, but they were basically like reporting on what's going on, you know? And this Dutch guy basically lived with them and wrote all about it. And I think Captain Morgan would have not been what we know today if it wasn't for this guy and so many other writers. Mr. Torres and I went on for a fair bit longer than that. Of course, the full interview will be available for our subscribers at patreon.com slash ahot, A-H-O-T. But there you go. That's a glimpse into the real Captain Morgan, privateering all about the birthplace of Caribbean rum and what would eventually become the United States. All right, this is, uh, that was really interesting. And I'm kind of excited. Well, I'm very excited because my story starts off in the 1600s as well. Well, the story starts off, but I want to start off before we get into those details. I want to ask you a question, Dusty. Um, Dusty, with your expertise, what what can you tell me about proof on a liquor? Uh, it is a bizarro measure of the alcohol by volume of any beverage. Um, in America, the proof number is uh, the amount of alcohol by volume in any beverage times two. So, for example, a 100-proof bottle of liquor would be 50% alcohol by volume. Yes. Yeah, that I, I should have known you would get that down. Um, <laughs> now, it a couple of interesting job. things. Uh, proof is not the same in other countries. So, in fact, uh, only the U.S. and the U.K. still have proof on things. And actually now, even in those countries, proof is just a marketing term now. Now, ABV, alcohol by volume, is the official term for how they measure alcohol. The interesting thing to me about proof is this legend that proofing started by lighting things on fire on a sailing ship. This sounded crazy to me. I did some research. I actually borrowed other people's research, but here's the story. So it starts off in the 1600s in the Royal Navy. 
So the Royal Navy around 1655 started giving sailors a daily ration of rum. Now, for no reason that I could uncover, they call that the tot. So that ration was a pint of day, a pint of rum every day in two doses. So they do it in the morning and then in the afternoon. But sailors were knocking down a half pint of rum at lunchtime. So imagine this. You're a young man's colonial ties. You're stuck on a ship, nothing to do, weeks from land, and drinking a pint of rum a day. This is why we have stories about sailors being drunks. Because they were. 1655, rum starts being the alcohol ration for the Royal Navy. As they move along in time, rum becomes the official alcohol ration for the entire Navy. So, 1731, the daily tot is a pint of rum every day. All these traditions get built around it. There's a special call for up spirits where everyone lines up to get their tot, which comes in a tot glass. Like these little, they're a little bit like Moscow Mule, like copper mugs. But you never washed your tot glass. There's another tradition. Because you didn't want the liquor on the inside to get rinsed out. You wanted to keep that in there to maybe make it stronger. And in fact, the question of stronger was was how we get to prove it. So, 1731, a pint of rum a day. Sailors thought it was great. That's the way they liked it. They never got bored, drunkenly sailing around the globe. But some of the captains had a problem. So the purser was the person that handed out the rum. And the pursers on some ships were told to secretly water down the rum. And the sailors were concerned about getting their fair share. So they took it upon themselves to measure the alcohol content of the daily, daily rations. So, Dusty, what do you know about measuring alcohol content? Have you ever messed with that science at all? Uh, I have. Actually, the context that I do it in now is a little different, but a, uh, a hydrometer is both a tool you would use to measure the alcohol content. Well, you can use it to measure the content of anything that's mixed into water. Mm -hmm. whether it's sugar or alcohol. Right. And a hydrometer, it kind of looks like a thermometer. It's long and thin, made out of glass, and it bobs up and down, and the measurements on the side tell you how much water in it is in it and how much alcohol is in it. Um, it's a really sensitive piece of equipment, which if you're a sailor who's probably drunk all the time, you don't have. So one of the funny things about this that reminds me is this all happened in the 1700s, right? 1731 is when rum was the official drink. It stayed consistent for a couple of decades before they started messing with it. 1750s is a hundred years before the first metal warship was made. And that thing was made by the French, actually. It was called the Glory. So I look at this and I think, yeah, what a concept. Lighting fires on wooden boats. But in like, the middle of the sea. How long could this possibly have lasted? Because, you know, if I'm thinking of myself as like a ship captain on an entirely wooden ship giving rum of questionable provenance to my staff, I mean, let's be serious. The ice we skate is getting pretty thin. Interestingly, yeah. So, uh, so there, there wasn't, there was only about 20 years when it was pure rum. 
Grog was watered down very precisely and watered down in public so everyone saw that they got the right mix of water and rum. It's called Grog because it's named after an admiral, the man that declared that we would water down the rum, and his nickname was Old Grogum. So they just called this the Old Grog and then Grog. So here's the funny thing about it, though. They started watering down the rum in the 1750s, but they still kept serving it. And if you had to guess, how long do you think it would take them before they thought, hey, giving our sailors rum every day might be a bad idea? Like, when do you think they stopped the tot? Oh, boy. Starting from the seafaring days? Yep. So ah. 1655 is when they started using rum. 1731 is when it was official and everyone in the Royal Navy got their rum topped for the day. Look, man, I just pour this stuff. I ain't the sharpest tool in the shed. Um, 80 years. Let's say they, they stopped years. it by like 1830. Okay, so almost right. In 1823, they cut the ration in half. So now they're only doing a half pint a day. You got to be kidding um, me. Nope. In 1850, <laughs> they cut it in half again. Ah! <laughs> They didn't stop doing it until the 20th century. What? They did it through... Oh, yeah. They did it through World War One. They did it through World War Two. Yep. The years start coming. They don't start coming. July 31st of 1970 was the day they stopped serving the tot. Okay, but I could, like... I could see myself being, like, part of the British colonial situation in India and being, like... I could use a little fuel myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But just remember, 1970, the Beatles had already happened. Yeah. Yeah. There are still people to this day, and they actually celebrate it. Um, in 2020, they had a festival for the anniversary of what they call Black Tot Day. No. Which is the last day they gave out their rum rations. And, and you could still buy some. When the Navy was done serving it, they still had cases and barrels of the rum left. And... Is a merchant bought it and started making a blend that he called the, the Black Tot Last Consignment. No, you're kidding me. Nope. Oh, nope. my God. Where do I get it? Okay. Uh, <laughs> you can get it on a British website. I will tell you this. A 750 mil bottle. 40-year-old, actually, I guess 50-year-old aged Black Tot rum is going to cost you $2,000 for a bottle. And mm -hmm. I would just trust them that it's foolproof and not light any of it on fire. Well, I will absolutely drink to that. So ends another episode of A History of Intemperance. He's Joe Hood, and I'm Dusty O'Connell. And a special thank you to Jesse Torres for his time. Thank you to Tarina Harvey Band for letting us use their music. If you're listening to now, a version of The Last Shanty. And thank you, dear listener, for enjoying the show. Please remember to keep your drinking responsible and your history accurate.